I'm Rabbi Nicole Guzik. And I'm Rabbi Erez Sherman. And, and this, this is SinaiCast. Sinai Catch up with Sinai Temple's latest programs, speakers, exclusive content. Candid conversations and inspiring connections. Follow us now. Bringing Sinai wherever you go. Good evening. Good evening, everyone. Good evening. Good evening. Welcome. Welcome to Sinai Temple on behalf of our senior rabbi, Rabbi Wolpe, all the rabbis, the clergy, uh, the board of directors, uh, and all of us here at Sinai Temple. Welcome. Uh, tonight's evening is uh, sponsored by the Sinai Temple Israel Center, by our men's club, and by our sisterhood. Hold it closer. Is that better? Thank you. It's sponsored by our men's club, uh, by our sisterhood, and by the Sinai Temple Israel Center. Before I introduce um, our guest tonight, I'd like us just to take a moment, uh, just of silence, uh, to think about um, our brothers and sisters and, and all the people living in the land of Israel right now. So we know of the latest events of the last uh, 48 hours, terror events, uh, both of Israelis were killed and Palestinians. And uh, as a people, we know that we pray for peace for everyone. And so I think we should take just a moment together to think about all the families who have been affected, to think about everyone who is in need of healing, to pray for healing for our people, for all people. Thank you. Uh, this evening, I am uh, really, really honored uh, to introduce uh, Lahav Harkov, who uh, is the senior contributing editor to the Jerusalem Post, um, and, uh, senior foreign correspondent. Lahav is the senior contributing editor to the Jerusalem Post, senior foreign correspondent. Uh, served for eight years as the senior correspondent in the Knesset for the Jerusalem Post. Has interviewed numerous prime ministers, including the current prime minister, Bibi Netanyahu. She is known uh, by the Jewish Telegraph Agency as one of the most influential Jews on Twitter uh, and is here to give us uh, some tremendous insight into uh, the current uh, political arena and atmosphere in Israel at this time. Following her talk, uh, Lahav will be in conversation with Rabbi Wolpe. And so on behalf of all of us, uh, honored again to invite Lahav uh, to join us at the podium. Uh, good evening, everyone. Hopefully. Um, so I thought that I would be coming here to speak mostly about the debate over the judicial reforms in Israel, which is the big political debate. Um, but as always, the news moves very fast in Israel, and we've had some 
the bad news of of, of other kinds in Israel in the past few days, um, terrorist attacks. Um, and uh, I think I'm still going to focus mostly on the judicial reforms, but it is something that, you know, we can't, I can't ignore when I'm talking about the, the current events in Israel. Um, and so I think when it comes to these terrorist attacks, I've realized that the way they've been presented in the U.S. a lot of times is really um, out of context. I saw an article just last week that was a timeline of recent violence between Israel and the Palestinians, and it started in January. Um, and when I saw that, I've, I found that a very strange sort of cutoff point. Like, why did they decide January? I think the reason they decided January was because of politics, because it was, you know, right after this new government was formed. And so it's easy to pin it on this government. But actually, we're in, a, unfortunately, an ongoing event that began last uh, Ramadan. Ramadan fell out at the same time as uh, Passover last year. Um, and even in the months preceding Ramadan, the government in Israel was trying to find ways to bring calm. They were There was already intelligence and concern that there would be violence at that time. Um, and the prime minister at the time, Nafsali Bennett, flew out to um, Jordan to meet with the king of Jordan in advance and to see what could be done to keep calm on the Temple Mount, which is, has been a site of many, many flare-ups in over decades. And unfortunately, it was to, to no avail. Um, as Ramadan began, you know, Palestinians began rioting and throwing rocks at Israeli police officers, and the Israeli police went in, and they found that um, that Palestinians, there's also Israeli Arabs, um, so you don't necessarily know, but they were stockpiling, um, you know, rock, when we say rocks, we don't mean like pebbles, right? We mean big rocks that could really hurt people. Um, I know a pebble could hurt someone too, but they were stockpiling big rocks meant to cause serious damage, um, all kinds of firecrackers and other small explosives inside the mosque. Of course, this gets presented in the world media as, you know, Israel is um, invading the mosque, storming the mosque. Um, and uh, especially in Arab media. Um, and so, you know, my, my area of coverage is um, diplomacy these days, and it's Israel's relations in the world. And you see how country after country is like, why is Israel doing this? Um, and so it's always very important to see things and understand things in context. And really, since um, it's, it's almost a year now, there's been at, at most every couple of weeks, um, some kind of attack in Israel lately. Um, and so it's, it's uh, a disconcerting and very tragic situation um, that neither the previous government nor the gover current government has, you know, a magic bullet that they've been able to solve. And um, this week, um, at the beginning of the week, there, were, there was a shooting. Two brothers were killed um, in their car driving um, near Harbacha, which is a town in the Shaman in Samaria. Um, and yesterday, I'm like thinking with the time difference, but yes, it was yesterday. Um, uh, actually, an, an American immigrant to Israel uh, was also shot. Um, and in between, there was another really horrifying incident where Israelis went into a Palestinian town and torched the town. Um, and they, I, they, I believe they killed one Palestinian man. Um, but they caused a lot of damage and a lot of people were injured. Um, and 
really just, it's horrifying, I think, to most, the vast majority of Israelis. That's not how we do things. Um, certainly shouldn't be taking the law into their own hands, but also just, you know, to torch an entire town. You know, that's not how the army would take the, that's not how the army would do things either. Um, but the current political situation in Israel is such that the most extreme elements on the right in Israel are now currently in the coalition. And so we were, we're in a situation where you have people who are in the governing coalition who, let's say they were wishy-washy on this. They were interviewed on the radio and they said things like, well, you can understand why people are angry. Um, and the two or three people, not the most senior people in the coalition, right? We're not talking about ministers in the cabinet, but still people in the governing coalition were sort of interviewed in the radio and asked about this, this Palestinian village called Huala and, and didn't come out and say, you know, this is horrible. You shouldn't be doing this. Only later on were they like, no, we were misunderstood. We just wanted to you know, talk about the situation and give context, et cetera. But, um, Politically, this week has also been, unfortunately, sort of a new, a new low, I think, for this government. And it's sort of, you know, overall, I tried not to, um, when I speak about Israeli politics, you know, I'm not like a partisan figure. I'm a reporter. Obviously, nobody is completely neutral and objective, but I try to filter my opinion out of things. That being said, I mean, there's a slippery slope when you allow extremists into your government. And um, this week, I think we really saw we saw the result, one of the results of that. You know, you, I can't necessarily blame this political party for Israelis going into a Palestinian town and burning it down, but I can blame them for not setting an example. I think as our elected representatives are supposed to. So that's something that unfortunately happened this week. Um, and this has to do, the party is led by a figure called Itamar Ben-Gvir. Um, he's currently Israel's national security minister, which is the name, he changed the name of the ministry. It was previously public security minister, and it's basically the minister who's in charge of police and um, border police. Um, he is a student of the thought of Rabbi Meir Kahana. So Rabbi Meir Kahana, uh, for those who might not be familiar, was an extremist rabbi here um, in the U.S. He was in the U.S. identified uh, mostly with the struggle to free Soviet Jewry, but was sort of the most extreme element. He was he and people you know working with him were arrested for wanting to bomb the Soviet embassy and things like that. And then he made Aliyah. Um, and became a far right-wing politician. He got into the Knesset. Back then, you could get into the Knesset as one person. The, the laws have changed since then, but he got into the Knesset on his own. And after he came in, um, first of all, he would give speeches um, about his views that were considered so abhorrent by most people in the Knesset that they would they would walk out when he would give speeches. He would basically give speeches to an empty room plus the speaker of the Knesset because he has to be there. Um, but then the Knesset actually passed a law that didn't allow him to run again. And that law is if you are campaigning on racism, you can't run for a Knesset. Now, um, many people have argued that this law is not properly enforced against the Arab parties in Israel. Um, but that's 
another can of worms that I think is uh, there's no Arab parties in the coalition right now. So, um, so we'll talk about Ben Gvir. So Ben Gvir uh, is too young to have actually been a student of Rabbi Meir Kahana, but he's sort of affiliated with the people who were Rabbi Kahana students and with that movement um, became sort of an extremist as a teenager already. Um, and has been very, he's very good at getting attention and getting media attention for himself and was already from a young age. So he's sort of one of the best known people from those circles. And they mostly revolve around Hebron. They live in Hebron or the nearby settlements. Um, he became really popular in recent years and his popularity really spiked after 2021 um, when, you know, unfortunately every couple of years there's sort of a, an operation or a, like a miniature war between Israel and Gaza and in 2021 it differed from a lot of the ones before. Um, I'm sure many of you remember because there was internist and violence inside Israel. So there was in mixed Jewish Arab cities. There were incidents where Arabs um, tried to burn down synagogues. They burned a lot of Jews' cars. Um, there were situations where um, they basically tried to lynch a couple of Jews, just pulled them out of the cars, and um, you know, groups of five, six Arab men just beat them one to death and one nearly to death. Um, and politically, this was happening at a time that um, there had been another election, um, four out of the five that we've had in recent years, and there were coalition talks going on. And about a week after this whole Gaza operation ended, there was a, a new government formed. And the news cycle kind of moved on. It was like the national attention moved on. But there were a lot of people in Israel who hadn't moved on from this, who were justifiably horrified and traumatized and said, no, wait a minute, just because there's a new government doesn't mean that this case is closed. Um, and they still felt fear um, and wanted this to be dealt with. And Ben Gvir saw that and understood that and really capitalized on that. And I, I think that his rise to greater power than anyone with his views has ever had before has a lot to do with what happened um, in May of 2021. Um, so now I'm going to shift to the other big issue that everyone's talking about in Israel, which is the judicial reform. And of course, if people have questions about the terrorism that's happening now or Ben Gvir, I will happily take them at the end. Um, so the judicial reform in Israel is coming after a long time that this has been a political issue in Israel. Excuse me. Sorry about that. Um, about 30 years ago, well, if we start back to 1948, which is 75 years ago, um, Israel was established without a constitution. Um, and instead of a constitution, there was what was called basic laws, which have a lot of the features of the constitution in the sense that they explain how the government works, you know, how a prime minister is chosen, how the president is chosen, how judges are selected, um, and things like that. And they were supposed to be building blocks to an eventual constitution. That never happened. 30 years ago, the Knesset passed two laws that deal with um, human rights, individual rights. And they were basic laws on the one hand. But on the other hand, there's no special parliamentary procedure for passing basic laws. It's not like in the U.S. when you have an, first of all, in the U.S. you have a constitution. But when you amend it, it's a very, very long process, right? And you need special majorities and you need approval from every state, et cetera. And in Israel, you could just pass a basic law like any other law. So that's what happened. It was like, I think it was, it passed with 32 votes out of 120 in the Knesset. And um, people didn't think that much 
of it. They thought, you know, this is a nice law that says, you know, the law, it's called basic law, human dignity and liberty, and that's great. We should all have dignity and liberty. About two years later, um, the man who was then deputy president of the Supreme Court, um, Aharon Barak, he um, ruled in a case, um, it had to do with financial issues, but he took that law and he treated it like it was part of a constitution. So he struck down a new law based on that law and said that, you know, these laws, the, the human dignity and liberty is now sort of a basis for judicial review of new laws. So Israel didn't ratify a constitution, didn't say they're ratifying a constitution, didn't say, you know, didn't change the law and there is an existing law of what the courts do and, you know, how they're supposed to operate. But the court started operating as if it was a constitutional court. Um, and that was in 1995. And ever since then, there's been controversy about that. Now, at first, it was reserved basically for academics. You know, it was something that was debated in law schools. Um, and, you know, some of the top very smart people held the view that, no, this was not legitimate. But on the court itself, um, most of the judges held the view that, you know, we can do judicial review. We can treat these new laws like they're a constitution, um, in part because for most of the ensuing years, the judges were self-selecting. So the way judges are chosen in Israel is there's a committee that's made up of judges, members of the Bar Association, and politicians. There's, there's ministers and there's Knesset members. Um, and for most of the ensuing years, the law was that you only need a simple majority to select a new judge. So you would have the half, that's the judges and the bar association. And then from the four politicians, one of them is from the opposition. So you would almost always have judges, have new judges chosen that were on the side or you know, that were that the that the current Supreme Court judges liked and wanted. You almost never had politicians that that excuse me, you almost never had judges chosen that were ones that say the politicians wanted, but the judges didn't want. That just almost never happened. And so it de facto was that the judges were choosing who the new judges were going to be, and they were choosing new judges who had their own philosophy. Now, um, about 12 years ago, I believe, um, a law was passed that you needed a two-thirds majority, so that created sort of a, a need to compromise. So well, up until that point, only well, in Israel, it's called judicial activism, people when they act as though there is a constitution. So until that point, there were almost only activist judges chosen. Once they needed to compromise, there were other, other judges chosen. Usually judges would be chosen for the court sort of in pairs as a part of the compromise. Um, but the activist sort of idea is still re has remained dominant, even if it's not the only thing anymore. Um, now, in terms of what judicial activism has meant and what it's done in Israel, um, it has been mixed, but the fact is that, um, I mean, in most of the ensuing years since 1995, Netanyahu has been prime minister. I think it's most, many of those years. And over the years, the court sort of became more emboldened. So when at the beginning, it almost never disqualified, you know, or overturned laws in more recent years to start doing it more frequently. And so first of all, like numerically, it's, it's a fact that they were overturning laws passed by the right wing government more often than the left. Is that a sign of bias or is it just a sign of who's in government? 
you know, I think everyone can look at it and sort of decide for themselves, but certainly um, on the Israeli right, the cause of opposing judicial activism for, um, became more and more popular over the years. So I remember I started covering the Knesset in um, 2011. And at the time, it was a very like wonky topic. You know, it wasn't like getting a lot of public attention. But there were some right-wing politicians like in the Likud party who were sort of plugging away at it. You know, they would try to make little incremental changes like that thing about needing a two-thirds vote. That happened before 2011. But you know, those are the little things like that that they would try to pass. Um, but over the years, it got more and more popular. And some of the things that um, that really popularized, and, and this is actually something I think people don't talk about so much in the news coverage of this, is um, you might remember that around a decade ago, there was a big issue of um, illegal immigration coming in from Africa. They would pass through Egypt and come in through Israel's south um, and claim try to claim refugee status. Um, and then once somebody tries to claim refugee status, you can't deport them. And then there were sort of tens of thousands of these African migrants living in Israel, and Israel had to sort of figure out what to do with them. And um, similar to, you know, at the same time, there was a migration crisis happening in Europe for different reasons. There was more Syrian migrants, but Israel was looking, looked at Europe and looked at other models around the world and sort of the interior minister at the time, his name is Gidon Saar. Um, he's now in the opposition, but he was interior minister at the time. He came up with this sort of um, facility that was in the Negev that it was like, um, the critics would call, the critics called it sort of a prison, and the not critics called it like a. They called it sort of. They called it like a facility. I guess would be a more neutral word that they used for it. But basically, people could leave during the day, but they would have to check in at night every night so Israel could keep track of these people. Um, they couldn't just go off and live or work anywhere they wanted in Israel. Um, and the Supreme Court overturned that didn't let the government do it. Um, and it was after it was already operating, so they had to figure out how to do with everyone. They, they sort of, you know, the, the government tried to change it a little bit to come up with some other solutions, you know, um, tweak it a little bit. The court overturned it again. And it was sort of like, that was the turning point, I think, when it became a very popular issue all of a sudden. Like, why is the court blocking us from trying to find practical solutions to our problems? And it started to become more and more of a right-wing issue. Um, and I say this because I think a lot of people think it has to do with Netanyahu's corruption trials. And while it's true that Netanyahu is on trial for several counts of corruption, um, a lot of the changes in the judicial reform, which I will get to soon, are either changes that it will take years before they actually have an effect, or they're just dealing with constitutional law. You know, again, the word constitutional doesn't exactly fit, but more or less a constitutional law, and they're not really doing with, dealing with criminal law. So while one could argue that Netanyahu doesn't like the current judiciary and could have a vendetta against it, it's not really directly affecting his trials, in my analysis at least. Um, and so what does the judicial reform want to do? There's 
there are several elements, but relating to the things I've described so far, first of all, they want to change the committee to make it uh, majority political. They want to get rid of the bar association representatives and put sort of more political people who are put people who are appointed by the politicians basically onto the committee. Um, and so, like in the U.S., really, where the, well, the president nominates and then you know the the Congress has to vote to approve the nominations. So in Israel, they want a politically dominated process. Of course, again, the difference, the U.S. has a constitution. Um, the U.S. has more than one house of parliament and, you know, a lot of other things that Israel doesn't have. Um, and so the critics sort of argue that there's less of a check on political power. Um, and so the judges would have more political motivations. And on the other hand, the people who support this say, well, the judges are very much self-selecting and they don't represent the diversity of Israel's population and they don't have viewpoint diversity. It's not just, you know, identity diversity. Um, so that's one big thing. The other big thing is that they want to not get rid of the judicial review process, but to regulate it. So um, there's sort of two things in the air right now. Right now, what's written in the bill is that you would have to have um, unanimous all 15 judges on the Supreme Court um, supporting the overturning of a law for it to happen. Um, it looks like moving forward, it'll be 12 out of 15, but that's still a lot. Um, again, I mean, we don't know if it'll pass at all, but it looks like they're going to change the bill. That's what they're talking about right now. Um, and then if the Supreme Court overturns a law, there's something called an override clause, which you might have read about because that is like a huge focus of the controversy. Um, the override clause is something that says that with a certain majority, the Knesset can re-legislate a law that the Supreme Court canceled. So, Right now, the bill says that it would be 61 members of Knesset, which means basically any government can repass a law that the Supreme Court struck down because you don't, 61 is the narrowest majority you could have in the Knesset. Um, now, the idea for this came from Canada, which in the 80s passed something similar to this, except that in Canada, Basically, they didn't have a constitution until that point. They passed a constitution, but some of the provinces opposed it. And so this was if something was overturned based on the new constitution, the provinces could then repass the law and it would be temporary. And it was only used, I think, once. And it had something to do with language laws in, in Quebec. Um, and again, Canada has a constitution, Israel doesn't. Canada has provinces versus a central government, Israel doesn't. So the critics say the situations are very different. The democracy in Canada has a lot more sort of safeguards than Israel does. Um, and the supporters say, well, you know, the Supreme Court asserted this power for itself to act as a constitutional court. The Supreme Court is not elected by the people and the people should be able to have more of a say that in the checks and balances between the different branches of government, that the balance, the weight should be more on elected officials than people who are unelected when it comes to the status of what the laws are in Israel. Um, those are the two sort of big elements of the judicial reform. So this is a huge controversy in Israel right now. There's weekly protests going on. Um, I think there's a lot to be debated here, sort of, but I, I think that this debate is presented 
in the international media and also by a lot of its opponents in Israel, the, the reforms opponents in Israel, as if this is a fight between democracy and dictatorship or democracy and fascism. I think that it's just different priorities within a democracy. There are democracies in the world who have different ideas of what the, where the checks and balances lie, what the courts should look like, what the parliament should look like. And we're having this debate out right now in Israel. And it is not a civil debate. It is not happening in the way that I wish that our parliament or would behave. Um, but it is happening. And a lot of this is just colored by the really, really ugly politics we've seen in Israel in recent years. I think that the fact that we've had five elections in such a short period of time has made, it, it's just poisoned the well, because usually you have time in between elections and people learn to work together in the Knesset. And the opposition can sometimes pass a few laws and try to negotiate with the coalition to get things done. But here, before anyone can sort of calm down and settle into work after an election, you suddenly have another election. And so it's an atmosphere where the sides are just delegitimizing each other and slinging mud on and on and on for years and years with barely any break. Um, and so I think that that's really influenced the debate and the, the tech of the debate about the judicial reform, that even more than the content of the reform, the politics have become really, really ugly right now. Um, and, and I have to point to the fact that the chief opponents of the judicial reform, right, which right now are opposition leader Yair Lapid um, and Blue and White Party Chairman Benny Gantz, they actually support judicial reform. They just don't support the law that's on the table right now. They would be okay with an override clause. They just want it to be a two-thirds majority of the Knesset or a three-fourths majority of the Knesset. Or Lapid has said, you know, he would want it to be part of a broader reform that has to do a broader sort of government judicial reform and not just focused on the judiciary, for example. But a lot of it is, you know, a, a lot of the Knesset including the opposition, agree that the fact that the court sort of asserted for itself these powers and that there hasn't been any sort of like regulation or existing rule of what the relations between the legislature and the court should be, they agree that that's bad and it needs to be changed. And the argument is about the details. Um, and you wouldn't guess that from how ugly the debate is and the sort of language that, the, that both sides are using about each other. Um, so, you know, I, I try to be optimistic. This is, this has been a bit of a bleak talk, unfortunately. I try to be optimistic and I really hope that people can, um, get over the ugliness that's in our politics right now and talk to each other because, um, you know, for the good of the country, because both sides want what's good for the country. They just are not expressing it in the best way right now. Um, so I think that's, it's a good time to take questions. Okay. Thank you so much. Let me start with uh, asking you um, a couple of specific questions. So, for example, uh, I saw in one of the one of the editorials about the judicial reform. Um, this one, I believe, by Yuval Harari, who's clearly a left-winger, that effectively there would be no check on a government's power. Like in the United States, the Supreme Court is 
a check on the government's power, so is a bicameral legislature. In Israel, what would be the, if the reforms go through, what could stop a government from doing what they want to do? Well, first of all, they, this reform allows judicial oversight to continue. But there's an override that the government, if it has a majority, can override, right? Right. But as we see, even with this government, which has a 64-seat majority, is you can't always get what you want, um, even in a majority. I mean, it just I didn't mention in my talk, but there's um, a bill going up right now, for example, that's death penalty for terrorists. Now, not the first time that a bill like this has come up, um, but the, I, it looks right now like they're not going to have a majority. So it's you know not necessarily so that... Um, an override clause means an override will automatically happen, right. I think. Um, I also think just that I don't think that the bill will pass as it is right now. Look, we don't know for sure, but I, I think that it will be more moderated. And the question of how much more it will be moderated depends on whether people can actually get into a room and talk civilly to one another. So is your read that some members of the current government are unhappy with their bedfellows? Like that they don't like the fact that they're part of a government that whose public face is Smotrich and Gavir, Ben Gavir? Yeah, I think Ben Gavir more than Smotrich. I think Smotrich is someone who has known how to work with Likud in the past. Um, and, and his priorities are such that they can work together, um, even if he makes statements they don't like. But there's definitely a sort of more liberal wing in Likud. And by liberal, I mean in the more European classic liberal sense, not in America where it's sort of synonymous for left wing. Um, you know, people who think that, you know, there should be a functioning egalitarian section of the Kotel and that nobody should be talking about, you know, modesty laws or anything like that. And um, and also that people should not be taking the law into their own hands. I, I mean, I even think that Netanyahu, it's sort of, uh, as we say, you know, like he he just he wants to be prime minister and he'll do it no matter what he has to do. But if he could choose, he wouldn't have chosen them. Well, yeah, I, not that that makes it okay, but you know. no. It, but so, I one of the things that is that is different is that Netanyahu is more left wing than his coalition, which has never been the case before. But yes, I just want to I want to go back to Smartrich for one second because America also has a range of opinion, but I don't believe that any American politician could survive the statement women shouldn't serve in government, which Smotrich made in Israel, but as you said, is a functioning member of the government. I'm not familiar with that quote, okay. but there is a minister in the cabinet who's from Smotrich's party. Who said so, that? No, no, there's a right. woman minister. I know. Oh, I know. So um, I'm, I don't know. But, but okay. I'm, I'm not saying he didn't say it. it. I'm just not um, so familiar with the quote, but in, in and, his actions, he has a woman who's a minister. And... Um, how likely do you think it is that this government will survive for an extended period of time? So I'm sort of of two minds about it, because on the one hand, this government's only been around for two months and they've right. they're really fighting about a lot. Um, on the other hand, they, they have nowhere else to go. You know, the, the Haredi parties at this point are completely on the right. They used to be sort of kingmakers who could go the right or the left, but the, the population has become very right wing. Um, obviously Ben Veer and Smotrich are not going to sit in a centrist government and Netanyahu, I mean, 
the reason we've had five elections in four years is because um, Lapid, Gantz, and others won't sit with someone who is currently on in under indictment on multiple charges of corruption. And so, and Netanyahu doesn't look like he's quitting head of Likud anytime soon. So, so there's so much to ask about that. Um, so, I mean, part of, part, let's turn to the left for a second. So do you think that Lapid is playing this wisely because the left seems as though it's fairly unwilling to sit down at the negotiating table with the right? I think that his unwillingness to negotiate with Netanyahu to be in a government with Netanyahu was something that he played well. He even got to be prime minister for a few months. Um, and, and I think that it's sort of what has made him the leader of the opposing camp. I think in this case with the judicial reform, while at this point, you know, he's sort of the leader of this protest movement, a lot of people are very worked up and, and hyped and, you know, supporting him. I think that it, the law is going to pass. This government's not going to stop. And so for the good of the country, because he does think that it's very bad for the country, he needs to find the time to sort of to sit down with them and try to figure out where they can compromise. I think maybe he's afraid that he they won't compromise enough and then he'll look like he sort of gave it a stamp of approval, right. which is a political problem. But, you know, it'll be worse if he doesn't do it. So how, I mean, how, I've seen polls that if the vote were taken today, the government would not win. The government that, uh, that exists would, how much damage do you think that they've done themselves and is it lasting? And if so, what's the mechanism by which Israel self-corrects? First of all, I think like the opposition has been very successful in, I would even call it branding, that they've used very extreme language against the judicial reform. Um, I think more extreme than is warranted in a lot of cases. And so that has scared a lot of people. Um, but I also think that Likud voters mostly are not interested in some of the like religious laws that the Haredi parties want to pass. They're not supportive of, you know, vigilante violence and things like that. And so you know, some of them, some of the like, you know, squishy Likud voters who they could vote Likud or they could vote a more centrist party that's in opposition now. I, I think that there's movement there. So how, speaking of the violence, I don't know how many of you saw that there was a video that went around the internet of um, people who had either themselves or their compatriots had set the Palestinian village on fire and they were saying the Kaddish, which seemed pretty awful. Um, how effective do you think that, I mean, do you think it's effective? Do you think it will horrify anybody who doesn't already go in horrified? You know, it, it's interesting. The people who do these things obviously are not people who care what the government thinks or the police, you know? Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. It's an interesting question. It took Ben Gvir like almost a full day to say anything. And then when he did say something, it was against taking the law into your own hands. And I think that the core of his supporters might not be happy with what he said. And so that's interesting to watch. Like, I, I hate to, I don't want to be someone who's like making excuses for him or saying he's becoming a moderate now, but right. I think he, 
has responsibility now. And so he has to weigh what he's doing a lot more beyond that. I think that, you know, unfortunately there are people in his party who don't think that it's so bad. And, and that's what's really, I mean, to me that that's something new that you have people like that in the Knesset, at least on, on the right, as opposed to that Arab parties, unfortunately. So the, the most, um, cogent argument that I've seen so far for why this is all terrible for Israel, Bichlal, like all, all over, is the argument that I first saw in Tom Friedman's column, but I've since seen repeated elsewhere, that people primarily from Tel Aviv who are in tech or building companies are going to be scared off by the judicial reform and go elsewhere that there's going to be a brain drain from Israel and startup nation is going to sort of collapse because it's not going to draw the kinds of people that it needs in order to build these businesses because they don't trust the government to be stable or to give them protections. Is that real or is that a diaspora read of what's happening there? I wouldn't call it a diaspora read because there's discussion about it in Israel as well, but I think that it's a lot more political than actually based on what's going on with the judiciary. I just want you to know, like the equivalent in some ways might be every time there's an election, people in Hollywood say, if so-and-so is elected, I'm moving out of this country. Right. Yet, remarkably enough, they're still in this country. So I don't know if that's the same thing here, but that is a threat that we've seen before. So when um, when Trump became president, I was um, the news editor of the Jerusalem Post. I was briefly news editor, and I assigned someone a story um, to talk to people who said that if Trump was elected, they were going to make Aliyah, and then to follow up months later, and none of them had actually made Aliyah. So that's, you know. Um, but anyway... Um, yes. The threat is much easier than the actual of carrying course. out of uprooting your life and your family. Of course. Um, so there, there are like a couple of companies that said that they're going to move their base of operation or they're going to take some funding that they got and put it in their New York office or their, you know, Silicon Valley office. Um, and, and there's talk also about Israel's credit rating becoming lower. I think the the first category is is very political, but the thing is, you know, markets are very much affected by perception, right. and so if the perception's not good, it, it'll hurt, even if the perception is not justified or you know is only somewhat justified, but not as bad as people are making it out to be. Now, if you were tomorrow transformed into a Palestinian, would you be terrified? Would you do you think that this? For for the for the average Palestinian on the street, not the politician, not somebody who wants to wreak violence on Israel, but like the average Palestinian on the street, is life going to get worse? And would you be scared? I, I realize that there was one really terrible thing that happened this week, but I don't think overall that there's such a that much has changed for Palestinians. Um, this government hasn't rolled back any of the like slight benefits that the previous government tried to do for everyday Palestinians, um, you know, try to open the border crossing to Jordan more hours and try to make the checkpoints more convenient. But then the previous government reversed the checkpoints issue because of terrorist attacks. So they did though approve more settlements, right? 
They did, and now there's this whole thing where there was this meeting in Aqaba last week with uh, with um, Jake Sullivan and representatives of the Abraham Accords countries and the Palestinians in Israel, and then Israel agreed to not do unilateral things. There's mixed messages coming out right now. So what do you think... Um, like? I, this is an impossible question, but it's so interesting to me because it, in some ways, this is the most interesting man in Israel. What do you think is going through Netanyahu's mind right now? Like, you've interviewed him. Um, I mean, he is, in by some measures, the most successful politician in the world. Um, and, and he's still on top despite multiple indictments and other, and a short election, um, a short period in the wilderness, which he's had before, after all. So do you think his thought is, I'll, 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 at least I'll give you some prompts before you, do you think he's thinking, I can handle this, I can control these people, um, I've done this before and I can do it again, or do you think there's a part of him that's scared that he has unleashed something that he can't control? I think um, all of the above. <laughs> I think that after the election, when the right got 64 seats in the Knesset, um, he thought this was going to be easy, and he was surprised by how difficult it was in the negotiations. And the negotiations took like basically the maximum amount of time that they could before there would be another election. Um, he has tried to just back out of a lot of the commitments he made in the negotiations. So just yesterday, um, dep someone who was a deputy minister, Avi Moz, he quit as deputy minister because he realized that Netanyahu gave him basically empty promises. Um, it's shocking that a politician would give someone an empty promise. Right. Never, it <laughs> exactly. doesn't happen in the States. I don't know how it could happen elsewhere. Yeah. I do think that Avi Moz is a unique figure. I mean, first of all, because he's unique in that he's, his entire focus is, is anti-gay. That's his agenda. Um, but also just unique in the sense that he like just answers to this rabbi and he doesn't really care about the politics. So once he saw he wasn't going to be able to do anything with his agenda, he quit. Um, I, I think that Netanyahu is hoping that like a taste of real power and politics will and responsibility will keep Ben Gvir and his people in line. Um, I think he still hopes that. I, I don't know of what's going to happen moving forward, though. And and lastly, before I, 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 I know other people have questions, and this has been very inside baseball-y, but I appreciate that. Um, what what should we keep our eyes on? Like, let's say, okay, so everybody here follows Israel News to a greater or lesser extent, but not everybody has the chance to read. I mean, we all obviously read the Jerusalem Post, but we don't have the chance to read everything. So what should we be looking for in the days and weeks ahead that will give us a signal about where it's all going? I think it's really important when you see like a controversial thing happening in Israel to try to find people on both sides. Um, because especially when you, the the sort of mainstream American media, but even some of the the other media in, in the U.S., um, they portray like one side of the debate. You know, they very much take the center and leftward side and don't really give a fair shake to the right. 
Um, and that doesn't mean that they have to agree with the right, but like there's so many articles about this judicial reform that they don't even explain why the right wants judicial reform. They just explain what's bad about it. So first of all, try to find someone who's telling either telling both sides of the story or seek out the other side when you only see one side. I think that's important. Um, I mean, I've, I would say the judicial reform is the really big story right now, so should, people should follow it. Um, unfortunately, there are a lot of people predicting that the terrorism is going to escalate. Um, I think it was the, the head of the CIA, maybe, who recently said he's worried that there's going to be a third intifada. I really hope that doesn't happen, but that's also something to keep an eye on. I, I know I said I was going to go to questions, but I want to ask you one more thing because we haven't touched on this at all. And I heard a, I don't remember who said this, some diplomat analyst, something like that, said something really interesting about Iran that I'd never heard before. He said, look, for now, I don't know how many years Israel has been saying Iran is going to get a nuclear weapon in like seven minutes, right? I mean, we heard this years ago and they still don't have a weapon. He said, now, North Korea got a weapon. Pakistan got a weapon. Iran is not stupider than North Korea or Pakistan. And the only reason that Iran doesn't have a weapon is they don't want one because they get much more diplomatic use out of threatening to have a weapon. Once they actually get one, they have nothing else to bargain with. They may have a weapon, but no one's going to give them anything because they have it. So do you think, first of all, that that makes any sense? And second, what is the state of play with Iran now, as you understand it, with this government? So first of all, I, I do think that theory makes a lot of sense, but I think that you, you can't rely on it. Right. You know, there's a thing that Netanyahu always said that, like, we learn from Jewish history that when someone says you want they want to kill the Jews, that we should take them seriously. And I think that that's true. I think that's, you know, and... We've, we've got a good track record on exactly. that. Purim is coming up, so, yeah. Right. right. So, so I think that... Um, well, it may be true that just being very close to a nuclear weapon, nuclear weapon gives them a lot of leverage that Israel just has to take the nuclear threat seriously as though it is 100% real. Um, right now, the latest report is that um, they've enriched uranium to 84% purity and 90% is enough for a nuclear weapon. So it's it's really really close and there's a lot of concern um israel's uh, foreign minister ellie cohen who's who's you were asking what to watch i think he's a rising star i think he's someone to watch um he was just in germany he's trying to convince israel's western allies to crack down on iran to you know bring back some of the sanctions um and so i think we're going to see a lot of that now okay Questions? If not, I'll keep going. Yes, go ahead. And I'll repeat the question. Yeah, uh, about the... Um, They're two in a row. Yeah. Okay, the question was, where is the judicial selection going to go, especially in light of the fact that the National Lawyers Association had a couple of sex scandals? Right. So the, the current leader of the Bar Association and the previous one had to resign over sex scandals. Um, I don't think that's necessarily the reason that the politicians want to get rid of the Bar Association on the committee, but it certainly doesn't hurt their case. Um, it, 
I think that, you know, so I didn't mention this in my talk, but President Herzog has like a, a proposed compromise. And his proposed compromise is that the committee should be divided evenly between politicians, like politicians or politically appointed figures and figures from the legal world. Um, so it doesn't necessarily have to be the bar association. It could be experts. It could be law professors or something. Um, that's a possibility. Again, the leading figures in the opposition are not negotiating. So at this point, so we don't know, you know, the, the coalition wants to push forward with a clear political majority. Um, so it all really depends on whether, whether the opposition leaders will sit in the room with the leaders of the coalition and, and what kind of compromise they could reach. Is there, is there pressure from the left to have the left leaders sit down or not? The pressure on them right now, at least from the activists is not to sit down. Um, uh, there's definitely voices that you hear in the media and from people who are more centrist who say, you know, we just need to have talks because we need to come up with some kind of solution. But I think the sort of loudest voices in the room are like, don't talk to this government. It's not legitimate. Sarah? If the judicial reform passes, would the law of return get changed? So, first of all, I, the two are not necessarily related. They could end up being related, but but I don't think they're like that one would bring the other. Um, the the Haredi parties they want, and not just the Haredi parties, also Smotrich, um, they want to change the law of return such that someone who only has one Jewish grandparent um, would not be able to make aliyah. Um, so it would, it would be sort of matrilineal descent only from grandparents um, or if you have one Jewish parent. At this point, it doesn't look, first of all, it's, it's just lower priority for the government because the judicial reforms take up so much of their time. But I've also heard from, uh, at least from one Haredi Knesset member, that they don't really think it's going to happen. You know, they want it, it's on their wish list, but it's probably not going to happen. Demographically, um, isn't the right on, isn't it demographically favored as the Haredi groups grow and secular groups have fewer children? Yeah, and it's not just that. It's just in general, in polls in Israel, younger people tend to be more to the right than older people. Um, Why do you think that is? I think that people... Um, you know, millennials and um, and younger in Israel um, grow, have grown up without any really hope for any agreement with the Palestinians. You know, um, as speaking as a millennial, um, you know, Oslo blew up when I was a pretty small child and there was the second intifada, right? The disengagement was followed by Hamas taking over Gaza. I, you know, people my age and younger have never seen any really hopeful process or any progress with the Palestinians. So. You have to speak a little louder.
feel that you do that. Why is father and how come my contemporary Why is the cleavage between the religious and those who really disdain religion or the religious so great in Israel? And I want to add one more thing. And? I grew up in Israel for 12 years. Is it true that in regular schools in Israel they no longer teach Bible? They do. They still teach Bible in the schools, but it's less than it used to be. I mean, like, I know that, like, in secular schools, you would learn, I don't know, the, you know, in, in my parents' generation and before that, you would, like, learn Rashi and all the different commentators and things like that, like, um, at a level that is maybe even commensurate with some religious schools here in the diaspora, but they definitely don't learn that anymore. Um, but they do still learn Bible and they do until very recently, I think they still had to take the Bagrut, which is the high school matriculation test in Bible. I think now they don't have to. I think now they have a final project instead because they've changed the system a little bit. Um, there is still Bible studies. It's just not not what it was in previous generations. Um, by the way, uh, before, and, yeah. before we get to the second half of that question, I think that's true for the humanities in general in almost every Western country. People don't study English and history to the extent that they used to. So Bible might also be partly a casualty of that shift. But why is there such a divide between the religious and non-religious? It, it's an interesting question. It's a philosophical question. Um, but I think that it relates to just like an even broader sociological thing, not just religious and secular, but that there's like a, you know, stereotypically like an elite in Israel that's like Ashkenazi, left-wing, and secular. And then you have it, religious people on the other side, but it's not the, the stereotypical Likud voter is Sephardic and traditional and right-wing. And so it's um, traditional meaning you know, they have Friday night dinner, they light candles and say kiddush, but they're not necessarily going to synagogue that often. They're, you know, after they have their Friday night meal, they'll watch a soccer game on TV or they'll watch the news on TV. Um, and the there continues to be this sort of resentment to some extent from um, Mizrahi Israelis, from Israelis whose roots are in the Middle East and North Africa, um, of the Ashkenazi elite, and that animates a lot of the Likud voter base. So I don't think it's only a religious thing. That being said, um, as I am religious myself, and I often hear people say things about religious people that, that really shock me because I wouldn't say things like that about secular people in Israel, you know? And I, I think a lot of it does have to do with the politics. There's this sense, feeling that, you know, too much money goes to the Haredim, too much money goes to settlers and things like that. Um, and on the other side, right, the, the Haredim settlers, religious people who are neither of those things often feel that the culture is very dominated by the other side. Um, you know, the judiciary is dominated by the other side. And it definitely has become 
uh, ugly in some cases. I'm really glad you said that. It's, it is very important, and most I think most American Jews don't realize this, the extent to which Sephardi and Mizrahi Jews in Israel feel like for years they were badly mistreated by Ashkenazim. And my cab driver, last time I was in Israel, which was about a month ago or so, a month and a half ago, when I asked him what he thought of the new government, he said, it's finally our turn. He wasn't concerned about the issues. It was just for years, they've run the place, and now we get to run the place. And Netanyahu is a sort of honorary Sephardi the way Begin was an honorary Sephardi. Yeah, maybe he's Ashkenazi, but he's, part, he's our guy in the same way that Trump could be an honorary poor person. Like, yeah, he's our guy because culturally he speaks to them in a way that other politicians don't. Jeff, you were going to say? Well, I mean, when you so, have... Uh, let me just say, what is it going to take for the center and center left to get back together again? And my understanding is this mostly the masses and not the leaders that are out at the protests. Go ahead. So the first few weeks, uh, the thing about the protests is this. There were protests going on now for years. Um, when Netanyahu was st still, before Netanyahu came back as prime minister and before Bennett and Lapid were prime ministers, so Netanyahu was prime minister and there were protests outside the official prime minister's residence every Saturday night for over a year. Um, and the current protest movement started not because of the judicial reform. It was just the same sort of people who had been protesting Netanyahu before restarted their protests Almost immediately after the election, it was clear that Netanyahu would be prime minister. So in those early weeks of the protests, um, the political leaders didn't join it um, because it was sort of seen, they were sort of seen as extreme and um, there were Palestinian flags being waved at some of the protests and things like that. But once it became sort of more focused on the judicial reform. So then actually a lot of the left-wing politicians and the center politicians did join the protests. Um, and Yair Lapid has been there and has spoken there and Benny Gantz has too. And they also go around the country to like some of the smaller protests in smaller towns. Um, if you're asking what, what will it take for the left to sort of center left to get its act together. So there's two things. Number one, the demographics are working against them, which we mentioned. So it might not be anything that they do. They, they, they might not have the numbers ultimately. But leaving that aside, if we say demographics are not destiny, um, they need to be more united. They need to actually work with each other and not against each other. Um, the differences between Gantz's party and Lapid's party are minuscule. It's more just that Lapid's party is seen as more elitist and Gantz's party isn't. And so some people maybe don't like Lapid and won't want to vote for him, but they are okay with Gantz, basically. Um, and the labor and merits, I mean, merits is not in the Knesset anymore. Merits was the far left party and labor was the sort of historic left party. Labor is tidy and merits isn't in the Knesset. And had they run together as one joint party, they probably would have had more seats overall. Um, but they, well, the leader of labor, Mayor Mikhaili, refused to do it. She thought that they would get more votes this way, and she was wrong. Um, it seems to me that if people worked together, they would do better. 
than working apart. Okay, let's take two more questions. Yes. Okay. So the uh, you were on, met the gentleman who was on a call today with a reporter from Haaretz, which is a left-wing Israeli paper. It's sort of the New York Times in some ways of Israel. And the guy was saying that uh, the protests are so enormous and they're everywhere that if they're not satisfied, there'll be tremendous consequences. And do you agree? And if you don't agree, why not? So first of all, there, there are protests happening throughout Israel. Um, at, at probably not every town, but they are happening in multiple places, and the largest ones are happening in Jerusalem and Tel Aviv, which are the largest cities. Um, they're big. They're not unprecedentedly big. Um, they're not as big as some of the protests about the cost of living were a decade ago. They're not as big as the protests against the Lebanon war were in the 80s. Um, they're not as big as the protests were against the Oslo Accords in the 90s. Unlike the other protests I mentioned, the ones against the Oslo Accords didn't accomplish anything. Um, but the others did accomplish things. Um, you know, that doesn't mean that they're not big. It doesn't mean that they shouldn't be taken seriously. Um, that being said, I do think that the core and where they begin was more purely politically motivated left versus right. People in the middle, um, people on the moderate right, are joining these protests though. So it's not only that. There is a, there's a reason that the protests grew once they became focused on the judiciary, and that's because it's an issue that more people were concerned with than just, you know, we don't want Netanyahu in office and, and, and that that should just be the protest. Um, people are saying a lot of very extreme things around these protests. Um, people are talking about refusing to serve their reserve duty um, and all kinds of things like that. Um, to, tomorrow is supposed to be, they're calling it the day of disruption, which frankly, I mean, the protests are always a day of disruption. They're always blocking roads and things like that, but I guess they're going to be blocking a lot more roads and things like that. That's, that's their goal, right? Instead of it being just a byproduct of the protests. Um, but I'm not, you know, the in a democracy, right? You the decisions you you vote at the ballot box. You don't vote by refusing to serve in the reserves or civil disobedience or things like that. And so, on the one hand, the politicians should take it seriously and take it into consideration. And on the other hand, there was an election and and they lost, and there's going to be consequences of that. It doesn't mean that the consequences mean they should be bulldozed. But they also need to accept that there will things are not going to go exactly the way they want it because their side did not win the election. Yes.
So, so that's a great question. For those of you who don't know Lisa Daftari, you should know Lisa Daftari, um, and uh, who is uh, a journalist that covers our world. Um, and the question is, if you're a journalist, do you have an obligation or a responsibility to cover in a way that you think will help people see your country more positively? Or are you guided by this sense of, I don't care what impression this makes, I'm just going to say what I see? So as a journalist, I think my first commitment is to to telling the truth, um, to presenting things as they are. Now, different people have different perspectives on what that means. And I often think that things, the way Israel is reported on is out of proportion or out of context. And I try to put it into what I think is the right proportion or context. So just like I said about these protests that I don't think that it's between democracy and fascism. I think that it's a legitimate debate within democracy of what the balance should be here or there. Um, you use the expression, it weighs heavy on your heart. So uh, like I report things about Israel that I know are like embar embarrassing isn't even the right word. I, just, I, didn't, I know they make Israel look bad, right? I don't love doing it, but I also think like these are true things that are happening in Israel and people have to not people, the anti-Semites have to know, it, but you know, we have readers in Israel who should be informed about what their government is doing. Um, and so I still have to do that. I just hope to always put it in the proper context and proportion and, you know, not just be like, you know, if it bleeds, it leads, try to actually tell what's, what's important. Can I, can I ask you, in particular, because you write for the Jerusalem Post, are you aware, are you more aware of the audience outside Israel since the Jerusalem Post, more than other newspapers, is going to be read by people outside of Israel? You know, Yidiot is going to be read mostly by people in Israel, yeah. but you're going to be read by us. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. The Jerusalem Post emphasize, often emphasizes different things than other newspapers do. Um, we're one of the few news outlets in Israel that has like a dedicated reporter for diaspora affairs, for example, um, as diplomatic correspondent, I'm, I and the defense reporter are considered the sort of leading reporters in the paper. And that's not necessarily true of other papers that the, the defense reporter, yes, but the diplomatic reporter, not necessarily. Um, so the proportions are different. And also I could say like when I was Knesset reporter for eight years, there would be Knesset meetings that like all of my colleagues would be running to, to cover. And I would be like, I don't need to be there. Like, you know, if some pop singer came and talked to the committee, I was like, well, you know, nobody reading the Jerusalem Post knows who Maya Buskila is, so I don't need to be there, you know? So I'm going to, I save the loaded question for last. Um, people that both of us are friendly with, um, Mati Friedman, Yossi Klein Halevi, Danny Gordas, yeah. um, Danny, who's certainly not a leftist, and your own editor, actually, Yaakov Katz, who also is certainly not a leftist, have all in some ways been very critical of this government. So do you think what's going on in Israel is unprecedented? Is the government unprecedented? Or do you think that their criticism is, again, just in the ambit of normal left-right argument in Israel? No, so I think that, first of all, this government is the most right-wing government Israel has ever had. And in the past, when people have said that, I've said, no, it's like about other governments. I've said, no, it's not true. And I've pointed to other things. But this time, I do think it's true. Um, and it's not normal in the sense that the government is 
normalizing, you know, Ben Greer and his party and the people in his party. And so I think there's a lot, you know, to be said about that. In terms of the judicial reform, as I said, there are people on the sort of moderate right or the center right who disagree with it and who, you know, are criticizing it. And frankly, this government has very few people or this coalition has very few people who are on the moderate right. It's just solid right and far right. Um, and so, you know, it makes sense that you would have someone, for example, like Daniel Gordas, who would be criticizing it. Um, I will say that Yaakov, my editor, has been very critical of this government of the judicial reform, but more recently he um, agrees with my sense that that the protests and the criticism have lost all proportion in the way that they're criticizing it. Yeah. I don't know about you, I learned a lot, and I'm very grateful to Lahav <laughs> and to Rabbi Taft for bringing her. And uh, I really appreciate, yes, please. You want to say something? And here he is. Thank you. Rabbi, for those um, of you who don't know Rabbi Avi Taft, Rabbi Avi hi. Taft. Hi, everyone. Uh, thank you so much for being here. Thank you to Lahav Harko for being with us tonight. Uh, she just arrived this morning at 6 a.m. from Israel. She spoke to our students at Sinai Akiba Academy and to our religious school students today and now spending the evening with us. So we're so grateful, of course, to Rabbi Wolpe for being in conversation as well. Um, <laughs> Uh, one more thank you to Judy Bagan, who really helped with all the details of tonight. And uh, in honor of this important conversation and in honor of her birthday, which is today, she's here to celebrate. We're celebrating with her. So happy birthday, Judy. Um, uh, one, final, one final comment, uh, and, and then we'll end. Um, when, uh, so I, I served in the Israeli army, and when I was in basic training, uh, we had to stand guard outside of our barracks, and there were evenings I'd stood outside, and I would hear booming voices from a distance, uh, and the voices were singing a song, and the words were, Am hanetzach lo mefached miderech aruka. And it was booming. The nation that lives forever isn't afraid of a derech aruka, a long journey. It turns out these were Bnei Shim, Bnei Shiva, a hundred of them who, who came into the army together, and they were finishing up a 30-kilometer march. Uh, and we know that this song isn't just about that 30-kilometer march. Um, we know that the Jewish people have been on a challenging journey for generations. That we know. Um, but most importantly, we also know that we have been Am Hanetzach. We have been a nation that has lived through so much, through so much adversity, through so much challenge, uh, and have persevered. And uh, just this Monday night, a plug for Purim to join us. Monday night, we'll read Megillat Esther, and at the end, we will say the words, Layudim Haita Ora V'Simcha V'Sason Bikar. For the Jewish people, there was joy and there was light. There was goodness. And as we say every Saturday night in Havdalah, Kenti Elanu, so too will there be joy and goodness and gladness for us. So I know we talked to, oh. and those of you who want to learn about the Mikilah, 
Meet me here for Torah class tomorrow yes. morning at 8.30. Yes. Amazing. Last part. On every long journey, there needs to be sustenance. We had sustenance for our minds and our souls tonight. And we also have sustenance for everyone. So we have a dessert reception just outside in Hall of Builders. Please join us uh, right now. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. I was so relieved that was sorry. <laughs>